0: Uh, take a moment just to introduce our guest speaker today. Uh, Jack Hardcastle is the family and community minister at Hillcrest Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. Uh, Jack has spoken all over the country for family ministry conferences, as well as serving as uh, a board member for the Faith at Home Ministries. Uh, Jack and his wife Susan have, have two children, two grandchildren. Uh, now, Jack is also an OU fan. Amen. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't realize your mic was on just yet. Um, but I won't give them a hard time about that, because they, they've had a hard enough year as it is. Yeah. Uh, Amen. <laughs> on, on a personal note, uh, I've had the, I had the privilege to work as Jack's youth intern, like 20 some odd years ago. Yeah. Um, and as a newlywed couple, Katie and I learned a lot about ministry uh, and what it looked like to work together as a married couple from Jack and Susan. So, Jack...
1: Thank you, Bruce. That's probably the best introduction I've ever written. (laughs) No, I, uh, I, wow, we've already been blessed this morning, right? Uh, Thank you for sharing your church with us. Uh, To the young man that came up here and stood up here by himself, great job. Uh, And to the family that, that, Let us through this communion thing. We've already had a lesson. We don't even, I don't get any ideas. We're still going to have one, but uh, what a great lesson about family and about the church family. Uh, My name is Jack Hardcastle. I serve as a family and community minister for the Hillcrest Church in Abilene, as he said. Uh, Bruce and Katie are very good friends of ours, and uh, I just would like to say, you guys are so blessed to have them here. Uh, They are incredible people, and and we love them very dearly. Uh, My wife Susan's back here. My gorgeous wife Susan is back here uh, sitting next to Katie. Uh, Tell you a little bit about our family. Uh, We have two kids. I have a son that is now the uh, regional director for Fellowship of Christian Athletes and uh, is doing a great job at that. He was a youth minister for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, had an incredible opportunity to do something that he loves, combining his love for sports as well as uh, uh, doing what he does well. Uh, His wife is uh, a uh, school counselor in the Wiley District, and they have our two grandkids. Uh, uh, We have a daughter that's in Lubbock. She is the uh, director of media design for Lubbock Children's Home, and uh, her husband is a teacher. And so you might say ministry is in our uh, is in our DNA. My father and grandfather were both uh, preachers. Some of you older people may have known of them. Uh, I, I have to I have to share about our two grandsons. I mean, we uh, you know that's the, that's the best part about uh, existence. Sometimes is your grandkids. In fact, uh, with our with our grandkids, I think I think they kind of look like me. Now I may be a little bit you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Partial? I might be a little bit partial on that, but uh, let's see if this is going to work. Okay, here we go. So here's the first picture, hopefully. Uh, this is my, my grandson when he was first. <laughs> when he was first around, uh, this is our first grandson. And, and so I, you can see a little bit of a family resemblance there, I think. Uh, here's pretty much what they look like now. Uh, and, and there's still there 's still a family resemblance there I believe and and so uh, I, the importance of family has always been around me i you know as i said i come from a legacy of, of preachers, and for some reason i didn 't want to be a preacher, not that there 's anything wrong with being a preacher i just that wasn 't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do youth ministry, and so I did that for about twenty five years and then Uh, transitioned into full-time family, and I still say I'm doing youth ministry, I'm just doing it from the top down, uh, because a lot of what I do is marriage and parenting counseling, and then what I call proactive classes on anything connected to family. And then God kind of moved me into a, a community phase where I'm heavily involved in a lot of different community aspects, but with a family emphasis, and trying to help families that are struggling through financial issues, homelessness, addictions, uh, a lot of different things, which I'll share a little bit later, but uh, family is important. But here's the thing. I really believe that the family is under attack in our world today, uh, and in a lot of different ways, and I'm going to be talking about how parenting is, is under attack, and, and many of you already know how marriage is under attack, and trying to redefine marriage in our world today, and, uh, and so there's a lot of things that are going on in our world today that are just attacking families. And we've got to figure out what are we going to do to change that. Uh, Here's some statistics just to kind of think about. You know, in 2011, going back a ways, 59% of young adults with a Christian background have been dropping out of church involvement. Now that was, what, 12 years ago or so. Now, the trends that were causing that, as they've been studying that, trying to figure out why, is you look at three different things. Well, the first one is just access to Wi-Fi is everywhere. And so you have instant information. Now, I want to be sure I say something before I begin to talk about the technology age that we're in. I am not against technology. I think technology is a great thing. I think it's just like any other tool that you have. Like if you have a hammer, you know, you could use it to build a home or you could use it to hit somebody in the head. You know, it just depends on how you use it. And so I think, I think technology is a great thing. But the thing is, we have instant access to anything now and we can carry it around with us. And you can imagine the types of things that can cause uh, people to be distracted. Uh, you have alienation from institutions and traditions that give structure and meaning. Uh, you know, there, There's no longer this commitment to things like the church. That's an institution to this generation. And so there, there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion, a lot of things trying to figure out exactly what does it mean to be a part of an institution. In fact, there's even some skepticism on whether I should even do that. Maybe I could just be a Christian by myself. So you have a little bit of that going on. You have alienation from institutions, then you have authority. It's kind of viewed with suspicion. You know, we, we kind of look at authority, whether it's church authority or law and order or politicians, you know, whatever. You fill in the blank. We're right in the middle of a political arena right now, aren't we? There's a, there's a lot of skepticism and suspicion about those things. So what's happening now? There's another book that came out called Faith for Exiles that I encourage you to take a look at because it's talking about what is this generation doing now? Today, nearly two-thirds of all young adults who were once regular churchgoers have dropped out at one time or another. Do you see where the trend is heading? It's not going down. The typical young person spends nearly, here's one of the reasons, they think, 20 times more hours per year using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. So what does that say? What does that say for us as as parents, and I want to say even as grandparents? I, I want to be sure that grandparents understand you have an influence on your grandkids. But we do have to be careful how we do that. Uh, there's there's things that we can do, and I'm going to share those a little bit as well, that can make a difference in the lives of our grandchildren. Here's a quote from that book that I thought was pretty powerful. The power of digital tools and the content they deliver, they're incredible. I mean, the sound bites happen quickly, and, and you guys know what it's like. You start watching a funny cat video, and all of a sudden it's an hour later after you watched 8 million funny cat videos. It's powerful. It just captures your attention. And we are the first generation of humans who cannot rely on the earned wisdom of the previous generations. Now, for you older people, you you remember how we would depend on our fathers and our grandfathers, grandparents, uh, for all the information that we were to to be given. It would be passed on from generation to generation. That's changed because now all the information is coming from screen-driven media. We relied on the previous generations to help us live with these rapid technological changes. Instead of older adults and traditions, many young people turned to friends and algorithms. Now again, let me say, I am not against technology. I love technology. But it's got to be used in the right way. And we've got to be willing to educate ourselves and try to figure out how can we use technology? How can we teach our kids and our grandkids to use technology in the right way? So what can we do? Well, that's what I'm here for this morning, hopefully, to share that with you. I I love the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Even saying that now is different. If you have your Bibles with you. So what do you do? You pull out your phone, right? That's your screen. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's our world now. So look, look if it's on screen, if it's in, if you actually have your Bible, turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter one. I love this book. Everywhere I go, whenever I would start a new ministry, I would go to the book of Nehemiah, and I would teach this book because Nehemiah is such a powerful book about rebuilding. And in the process of rebuilding, it tells a story. But if you have never read Nehemiah from front to back, I would encourage you to do it. I, I work with a group called Men of Nehemiah in Abilene, which is a men coming out of homelessness and addiction. And we go through 12 weeks of a study on, on this story in talking about how do you rebuild your life? How do you put people around you that can help you be the person that you need to be? So I'd encourage you, if you have not read Nehemiah, Go back and look at it, but there's some things that I believe we can learn from it. And here's, I'll go ahead and give you the four things. Let's skip one. There we go. Oh, we'll go. All right. How do I go back now? Technology. There we go. Okay. Here's, Here's the four things that I think we could do, and these are things that we can all do from whatever age you're at. It's important to understand what can we do about making sure that we don't allow technology today to drive us. So the first thing I think we can do is Prepare. And one of the ways to prepare is just acknowledge what we need to do. Acknowledge that there's a problem. There's a lot of people who don't feel like there's any problems going around. So we've got to prepare. So that means preparing by doing things like this. Preparing by doing some research and reading some books that, that I'll tell you about a little later that have to do with this you know, trying to figure out what can I, even as grandparents, there's a lot of great grandparenting websites you can go to that tell you how to help your grandchild as they navigate through the world of screen-driven media. Prepare. Uh, One of the, you'll hear me talk a lot about this one, pray. In fact, that's one of the biggest parts of Nehemiah chapter one is Nehemiah's prayer. And I think there's some things that we can learn from Nehemiah's prayer that will help us to know how to pray sometimes. Planning ahead, trying to figure out at whatever level you're at. If, you have, if you're a new parent, plan ahead. If you have a young child, plan ahead for when they're in adolescence. If you have teenagers, plan ahead for when they're young adults. It's never too late to plan ahead. If you're close to grandkid age, plan ahead. Start doing some research, figuring out what's going on. In the world today, and how's it going to affect my grandchild? Plan ahead, and then lastly, I think one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to practice what we preach. If we're going to tell our kids to throw the phone down and not bring it to the dinner table and set it aside before you go to bed, then we've got to be willing to do the same thing. Because it seems hypocritical to your kids if you're telling them to get off your phone, but you're standing there, olden years, looking at yours. We need to practice what we preach. Nehemiah did this, which we'll look at. So let me go ahead and look at this. Uh, Let's talk about preparing. And and with each one of these, there's a different thing that you can teach to your kids. And so in the first chapter of Nehemiah, you see Nehemiah there. And and to tell you, the the cool thing about Nehemiah is he doesn't tell us his job until the very end of the first chapter. And I think that tells you something about Nehemiah. The very last verse of chapter 1, Nehemiah finally says... I was cupbearer to the king. Now, that's a pretty important job. The cupbearer to the king was the guy that tasted the food and the wine before the king did, so nobody could poison the king. So basically, he was saving the king's life every day. That's a pretty important job. Now, if if you're somebody like me or you or whoever, you you might start a book about yourself by going, yes, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, let me tell you my story. I think this tells you something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah begins his story by talking about how his brother comes to him. And the first thing he does is he asks him about Jerusalem. Every good Jewish man knew Jerusalem was the Mecca for their people. Kind of like Norman, Oklahoma would be for my family. Or Austin for some of you families. You can go forward later. Try to imagine what it would be like, though, if somebody came up to you and said, man, I hate to tell you this, i got some bad news, but your city's been destroyed. And everybody there was taken captivity. Some of you will remember the Oklahoma City bombing. My dad was working at the Christian Service Center in Oklahoma City as the director of that program when the bombing happened. He heard it. That was like my backyard. Oklahoma City is just 30 minutes from Norman, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff. And when that happened, I remember just going, what in the world? And when they started showing pictures of the firemen bringing out lifeless bodies and all, I I wept. Because, I mean, that was, you know, that was my people. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. Every good Jewish man, his, his hometown is Jerusalem. And he would always ask about Jerusalem. They go to three or four feasts a year and as a big family reunion and spend time together. And so his first thought is, tell me, what, how's Jerusalem? What's happening? And his brother says, Jerusalem's been destroyed. People have been taken captive. So the first thing you see here is Nehemiah's reaction. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, I don't want to sound like a doomsayer. I think we have some really good things happening in our country and in our world. And I think we spend way too much time talking about the negative things about our country. But I will say, we've got some things going on in our country that are worth weeping over that are worth praying over for days, worth mourning over. That's preparing. That's thinking about what we need to do with our children and our families. That's teaching direction to God. If there's one thing that we can do is we can stretch our hands out to God and say, God, in the midst of all this, save us. That's what Nehemiah did. When he heard about those things, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. So we need to teach that direction in our families. We need to teach the idea that when things are tough, whatever things that are going on in our world that we just can't explain, and the only thing that we can do is weep and mourn, and maybe even fast if we're real spiritual. We need to teach direction to God. This next thing is is one of those things that you probably go, yeah, I know we need to do this. But the the cool thing about Nehemiah chapter one is we see the inside of Nehemiah. We see this prayer. And you know, there's only like three prayers in the Bible of people that we're actually able to hear and to see and to go, okay, this tells us a little bit about the inside of that person. John 17, we see the prayer of Jesus. And we know what, what a lot of his thoughts inside were about, about unity and love and compassion. In Nehemiah's prayer, we see about the same thing, but I want you to think about how you pray and see if there's some things that we can learn about how we should pray. Because a lot of times whenever we go to prayer, the first thing we do is we ask God for what we want. Anybody do that besides me? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. A lot of times the first thing we do is is what we're thinking about at the time. And one of the things I love about this prayer about Nehemiah is it gives us a little bit of a direction on maybe how we should pray as families. The first thing I believe we should do is adoration of God. Just say, God, thank you for who you are. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments and let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night and for your servants, the people of Israel. One of the first things I think we should do when we go to God in prayer is to tell him why we love him and adore him. Now that sounds a little bit Weird, maybe. I, I adore my grandkids. I don't just love them. I always thought adore was like one step above kind of love. If you, does that make sense? You know, when you say you adore something, it's, it's like it's like steroid love. I, I don't know. Well, you know, it's like, it, it's one step above that. And to tell God, God, I adore you. We sing these amazing songs, and thank you for those songs this morning. You know, when we sing those, are we saying, God, we adore you? There's another, there is a song that says, we love and adore you. Do you mean that when you sing it? That's such an important thing in our prayers. There's another thing that I think is important. Before we get to the point where we ask God for stuff, is we need to teach confession to God. I'm so glad that in our tribe, when I mean tribe, I mean in our our church system, we do communion every week. You know, I don't, I don't sin like once at Christmas and once on Easter and uh, maybe a couple of times, you know, for a funeral. or t- I, You know, I don't sin that way. I sin every week. And so it helps me every week to go back and to think of the things that I need to confess to God as I'm taking communion. I'm thinking back over the week going, God, what have I done this week that I need to bring to you and just say, I confess this. Nehemiah took it to the next level. He says, I confess not only my sins, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, all those that we've committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. When you confess your sins, do you say, God, forgive me of my many sins, which is important but are you actually thinking about the sins that you committed that day? I think confession is something that we need to really think about in our prayers and really think about those things that we need to go in front of God with and be open about that. I think another thing we need to teach our kids is instruction from God. You know, I don't know that we do this much anymore. I You know, as families, there's been a lot of studies that talk about families that do family devotionals and things like that. That it seems like it's something that doesn't happen because now we have an app for it. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon." I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. We need to teach that instruction to our children, to our families. We need to say, you know what? God is so great and so full of grace that even if we go to the farthest place away from him, he still will bring us back. That's the kind of God we serve. That's instruction. We need to teach instruction in our families. You see him continue on, and and you see him say something like, we need to pay more attention. Not only do we need to know the instruction, but we need to pay attention to what God's doing around us. If you begin to look with spiritual eyes, you'll see the things that God is doing. He says, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. Now notice this. This is the request. It took him a while to get here. But what did he go through? Adoration, confession, instruction. Before he got to the question, he says, I'm going to bring my attention. And I'm going to ask God to bring his attention. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, this king. Because it's right after this he says, I was cut bare to the king. Now notice that request. For one, he doesn't say, God rebuild the wall. What does he say? He says, God, give me favor in front of this king so that he will do what? Let me go back to my country. Let me go back to my city. Let me go back and rebuild the wall. I think a lot of times when we pray, we want God to do what we need to do through his power. You read the rest of the book, you see, spoiler warning, okay? They finished the wall in record time after it had been broken down for hundreds of years. But it was only with God's help that they were able to do that. So the one thing that I've already said something about is planning ahead. Plan ahead. When Nehemiah was was praying to God and saying, God, give me favor in the presence of this man, he didn't just sit around. He was planning. I bet he was continuing to pray, too. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the first verse, it talks about in the month of Kislev, and and that kind of translates to our December, Okay, just so you kind of know. That's where the story begins. And so this is when his first prayer happened. I don't know if you've prayed for instant answers. (laughs) A lot of times we want God to answer our prayers immediately. It's like, God, give me patience, give it to me right now. You know, kind of stuff. We see in 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 the very next chapter that it was four months before God answered the prayer. It was four months before anything happened. And a lot of times when we pray, we we expect God to just say yes and move. But God can say a lot of different answers. There's four ways God answers prayers, by the way. You know, yes, sometimes we love when he says yes. We don't like it when he says no. And and no, by the way, is an answer. I I don't know how many times I've talked with people and they said, well, God didn't answer my prayers. And I said, well, do you think he said no? That's an answer sometimes he says wait you know it's like not right now but it will come and that's you know that's a better place than know but the best one this is one nobody really remembers sometimes he says i'll give you more than you ask for he did that here with nehemiah you'll see look at what happened after he gets to the point where the king says what is it you want It's interesting. When you read it, he stops and he prays. And it doesn't really tell us what he prays, but I think he stops and he thanks God right there. That's what I think. And he he says, all right, God, this is it. Thank you for answering my prayer. I'm going to continue. So I also said to him, after he had said, can I go back? And the king said, yeah. If it pleases the king, May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residences I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, notice who he gives credit to, the king granted my requests. Isn't it great to be in the presence of answered prayer? You ever been there? Somebody say amen to that. Thank you. Isn't it great to be in the midst of answered prayer? Here he was. And he says, because of the gracious hand of God, the king answered my prayers. He granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters, And then notice this very next, just real quick sentence. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. In other words, God said yes, but gave him more than he asked for. That's because he was devoted to God. So we need to teach devotion to God within our families. What does that mean? That means a lot of different things. One of the the things I think it means is we need to spend time with God. We need to be the examples of what we need to be to be able to say, you need to follow God because I'm following God. And we need to be showing that. That leads us to the last one, which is practice what we preach. This is a dedication to God. I, you know, When you read the rest of the book, you'll see all these different things where Nehemiah could have done things because he became the governor and he could have taken the governor's salary and he could have done all this, but he didn't do it. So he continued to work with half a man holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. They didn't even take time to change clothes. And they could have. And they should have, probably. (laughs) But that's how dedicated they were. Later on, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. They could have had a lot more of the food, the better food, than the people had. The earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people. And took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But what did he do? Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. That is dedication to God. That is showing it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I'm going to do what's right. We need to do what's right. We need to be dedicated to God. We need to show that in our families. Let me give you three things real quick that we could do. Three things that I think are really important. To be able to accomplish this. What do we need to do? First thing is this. We need to be open in our brokenness. Uh, Quick story about this. I want to tell you how this all came about. Um, There was a book I wrote last couple of years called Living in Open Brokenness. And it came about because of a situation that happened when I was uh, volunteering, working in a prison, teaching fathering classes. And we have this graduation experience, we call it, where they go through 12 weeks of training to learn how to be good dads because, to be honest, there's a lot of guys in there going around making babies but don't know how to be a dad because their dads were either absent or abusive, and that's one of the reasons they're in prison. And so we would have a graduation time, and this was... This was on a Wednesday night during their prison worship service. Because we wanted to be sure we honored these guys for completing this. Because they don't get a lot of props in prison. So this was a way to kind of honor these guys. So this was actually the, the Wednesday night between Christmas and New Year's. So you can imagine there's not a lot of people available to help out with this. So we show up on Wednesday night, and when you go into the prison, you, you go through the gates first that are the, the regular gates. And I'll I never forget, because I took my son this time, and, uh, and it was a great experience for him. But when you walk through the first two gates, you turn around, and there's a sign behind you that says, hostages will never be released through this gate. That's a little bit, of, uh, you know, kind of a scary thing when you see it the first time. So you go in a building and you go through another sally port that leads into the main area. And then you have to walk down between all of the dorms to get to the gym where the worship time was. Now, I had been there many times before this, but I was carrying my son with me, not carrying. and he was college age probably. And we go into the gym and, the, and I'm looking around and all I see is white jumpsuits. And I'm thinking, where is, there's supposed to be volunteers here, guards, you know, there's supposed to be people, and there wasn't anybody there except about 200 inmates. And so I just did, in, in my head, kind of went, all right, God, you got this. So one, one of the inmates came up to me and said, man, we're glad you're here. The, the, the chaplain's clerk isn't here, and the, peop, the volunteers are not here, so you, you're in charge. And I'm going, wait, all I'm doing is my graduation thing with my guys. And I go, nope, you're in charge so I went, okay, so we, so we started this, they had like a prisoner praise team that got up, and, and they did their stuff, they said, okay, you're up, and if you're a good preacher, minister, whatever, you always have one good lesson in your back pocket that you need anytime, and that's, so, the, so that was, I had one, and so I went up, and I did, I did that, and, and it was really interesting, they, we, we do offer a, a invitation in that, And after i was done there were 36 guys that came forward to be baptized and that was crazy you know i'm thinking okay they were already thinking about this you know And, and one of the cool things about this prison they actually have a baptistry that they roll out every week and it's actually here's here's the coolest thing it's a converted communion table They had taken an actual communion table, hollowed it out and put a tank inside it. So when you roll it out on the side, it says, do this in remembrance of me. And I just went, wow, okay, that's cool. Every baptistry should have that written on it. And so these guys lined up and, and just to be blatantly honest, whenever they do baptisms, they just strip down their skivvies. And as they were lined up, I began to notice... As they were coming up, their tattoos, their scars, their bullet holes, <laughs> their, some of the tattoos were racist or or pornographic or words that nobody should ever say. And I wish I had a, like a really cool story that when they got baptized, they all disappeared, you know, or something like that, but... Uh, When they got baptized, they would all come up in different ways. Some of them would come up real yelling, excited, and some of them would just kind of quietly, pensively say thank you. And what happened was all of those tattoos and scars and things that they had written on their bodies became stories that they could share. And when people would ask, they would say, that's the way I used to be. And it made me think, what would happen if we lived that openly in our brokenness? That when we sinned, there was some kind of a mark on our body that exhibited that sin, you know? And and we had that as kind of a story. Well, we don't. But we can still tell those stories. If we could learn to live in open brokenness, if we could learn to do that in our families, and and I mean even share our stories as parents to our children, age appropriately, obviously, that could change some things. Our kids could see us as humans. If we could learn to live in open brokenness, I think it might make a difference in the lives of our families. I think another thing we can do is not only live to be open in our brokenness, but we need to be optimistic in our breakdowns. We need to do what we can. When those things happened in our families, and every single one of us have things that have happened, whatever that is, we need to be optimistic in our breakdowns that God is going to pull us out of this. When Nehemiah had what, he hap- what happened to him, he relied on God. First thing he did was he went to God. Well, actually, the first thing he did was he mourned, and he was, and he was upset and really struggling anybody in here struggling in your family don't raise your hand we need to be optimistic in our breakdowns the things that happen to us but here's the last thing and one of the most important ones i believe we need to be operating in our breakthroughs when god answers the prayer what do we do do we say oh never mind god i've got it or do we say there is no way this could have happened except the grace of God. So I don't know where you're at in your family, but I know that every family struggles in some way. Final story, that I'm done. There was an earthquake in Armenia back in 1983 that killed over 30,000 people. And there was his father that had been at work that day, and he knew that the earthquake was centered right over where his son's school was. And so he immediately left work and got as quick as he could over to this school. And he began to yell his, name, his son's name because it was just rubble. And he would say, Armando, Armando. He wouldn't hear any answer. And so he began to pull rocks aside, and you know, and he had, he, he had gotten there after everything had happened, and so there was a lot of people just surrounding him, and as he was pulling rocks off and yelling, Armando, Armando, they would come up to him and they'd say, hey, there's nothing there, you need to, you know, there's nothing left, and he would go, he would turn around, he'd look at him and say, are you going to help me? The fireman would come up to him and say, Sir, sir, we need, to, we need you to pull back. It's dangerous. And he was still pulling rocks. And he would turn around to them and say, Are you going to help me? And he came back day after day, pulling more rocks and more rocks back. And, and even the police were finally coming up. They, they saw him and, and they were saying, Sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave. And he would turn around and say, Are you going to help me? And one day he began to hear voices. And so he pulled rocks and he yelled, Armando! And he heard his son's voice. And he said, Armando, are you okay? And, and he heard his son say, yeah, dad, we're, we're okay. There's about 13 out of 33 of us left. But I kept telling them, my dad is going to come get us. He promised me that no matter what, he would always be there for me. And so he began to pull the rocks and the other volunteers came. And as they were pulling him out, he kept waiting for his son. He finally looked down and he said, son, come on out. And his son said, no, dad, let everybody else come first because I know that you're going to get me. Are you going to help me? are you going to help each other? Because there are many things that happen in life where we're trying to figure out what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? Well, if we can learn to live in open brokenness, if we can learn to be optimistic in our breakdowns, if we can learn to be operating in our breakthroughs, that acknowledging God, when those things happen, it'll make a difference in our families. And when we make a difference in our families, it makes a difference in our culture. If it makes a difference in our culture, then it can make a difference in our world, which is what we ultimately want. So I ask you: Are you going to help me? I don't know what your tradition is in regards to, you know, invitations, but I do want to offer an invitation. I know there are elders here that will pray for you and and help you and your families. Uh, There are people, there are ministers here that help you in your families. And and I just want to say, don't wait. Start now. Do what you can to make a difference in the lives of your family. I know we're going to have a song, and I'm assuming that if you have anything, you can come down here to the Ford. And I'll be be glad to pray with you, or there'll be an elder or minister here to pray for you. And, uh, and we just want you to know how important you are. Make a difference. Let's see.